welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Just going to be me today. And this is a special episode just for our Patreon donors. It's not really going to be too heavy of an episode in terms of uh, serious political commentary. Um, but this is what these bonus episodes are mainly for. Something more on the fun side, not as depressing. And I should say up front, this episode is going to be split into two parts. So this is part one. Keeping it a little bit more light than the typical Media Roots Radio episode. So what I wanted to do on today's episode is basically give you guys a list of films, uh, mostly American films, uh, that I feel have really strong and good politics in them or have a particularly negative view of U.S. government or corporations or oligarchs. Instead of just giving you guys a giant ranked list of like my favorite political films ranking down from like number 40 to number one, I'm going to divide them into separate categories. Because I think while there are a lot of great films that have politics, you know, great politics in them, and have really strong anti-government or anti-corporate messages, a lot of them fall into different genres or different categories of movies. Some of them are comedies, some of them are horror movies, some of them are straight up just political thrillers or sort of autobiographical films about real people or real events. But I've sort of taken the time to create an individual list for all of these different genres, an individual ranking. So I'll sort of give you the categories of what type of films within the genre of strong political films uh, that I'm going to be going through. So this is the order in which I'm going to be talking about these films. So first, I'm going to give you guys a top 10 best films that I think fall under the category of parody, satire, or commentary of American society. Some of those can be comedies. Some of those might be mockumentaries. Um, there's actually a few sci-fi movies in there as well. Then I'm going to move on to fictional political thrillers or political dramas. Um, I have ranked 10 movies in that category for you guys uh, with some honorable mentions that didn't make it into the top 10. Then I'm going to move on to war movies. Some of these, or actually all of these war movies that I'm going to be mentioning are based on fictional scenarios but have the backdrop of a real war that happened. World War II, Vietnam, the Cold War. Um, I've ranked about five films in the category of war movies that I think are particularly strong. Then I'm going to move on to horror and sci-fi films that I think have really strong anti-government and anti-corporate messages. I've ranked those into a top 15 list uh, with some honorable mentions as well. And then finally, um, ones that I think perhaps have the most resonance are political are films that are based on true events or real people. This is how I'm going to end the podcast, giving you my top 10 favorite films that are based on true events or real people that have very strong politics uh, and, and sort of a political worldview that I largely share. So 
I'm going to sort of be assessing these films on, on many different merits. They all have something in common. And I think for the most part, what most of these films have in common that I'm going to be discussing is that the main antagonist of the story is either an aspect or a player in the U.S. government or an oligarch or corporation. So, I mean, in general, political movies are a dime a dozen. Uh, but depending on which one you watch, the commentary can either be very good, um, very strong and effective, or kind of ripped from the headlines, generic, and not particularly deep. Um, especially from the Bush era onward, most even, I would say, left-leaning political films are very neoliberal at best. And even movies about American racism and the history of that often have sort of a white savior main character, which kind of really defeats the purpose of it completely. So some of the films I'm going to be covering are grounded in reality uh, based on real world situations or have completely no bearing on reality at all, um, but still have some kind of strong anti-U.S. government commentary or anti-corporate commentary in it. And the way I'm going to be sort of assessing each one of these individual films, just on their sort of the strength of the message in them, I'll just give you some examples. So how high up is the antagonist if they are a corporate or government figure? Um, is it, if it's a corporation, is it the entire corporation? Is it a real corporation? Um, highest levels of the corporation involved in a conspiracy? Is it the CEO? Is it a board member? Is it a crooked employee? Or just a rich investor? And when it comes to how high up in the government the antagonist is, is it the entire White House? Is it the president? Is it the highest levels of the government? Is it an administration official working behind the president? Is it a congressman? Is it a senator? Is it an entire agency like the CIA, or is it a rogue agent, or is it the head of an agency? So I think these things all determine sort of the overall strength of the, the anti-government or anti-corporate message in the film. Because if it's a low-level person, generally speaking, that's not really an indictment on sort of the evils of the U.S. government, what corporations are capable of. I would argue that the higher up the antagonist is in the government or corporation, the stronger that particular message is in that film. The, the stronger it actually indicts the system, the framework of the U.S. government and the framework of capitalism. So one of the questions I'll be asking is, does the film make a point to separate, quote, rogue actors from the overall structure of a government or corporation? Or does it indict the system too? Because I think, you know, that's a really crucial thing. There are plenty of films, you know, that show how one rogue government actor is doing something particularly evil, um, but it doesn't actually indict the system. There's plenty of movies like that. Um, you can find tons of movies about like rogue assassins, you know, that used to be part of uh, the CIA, but that don't indict the CIA itself. Now, some other ways I'll be sort of judging these films since some of them are actually going to be like sci-fi films, um, one of these ratings won't really apply. But basically, I'm going to be ranking them on several merits. How evil the corporation or U.S. government or people from it are represented in the film. Are they 
are they represented as a sort of pragmatic, savvy people who just have to do horrible things for a, a greater good, or are they represented as truly evil people that have no compassion for others? And some other things I think that help me decide these lists is could the scenarios in the films actually happen? How realistic are they? And as far as some of the sci-fi films I'm going to cover, uh, not very realistic at all. But I'm going to be using this to judge some of the other films that I'll be discussing. Um, how timeless is the political message or the message in the movie? Will it last only a few years or will it be sort of a timeless message that 50 years from now you can watch this film and really still get something out of it that reflects the current times that we live in? And then finally... You know, I could probably just list out, if I wanted to, all of the films that, to me, have the strongest politics. If that was the only way I was going to judge them, there would be a lot of bad films in there, unfortunately. There are some films with very strong politics that are poorly made. And I'll just give you one example of it. Um, and I don't want to single out Brian De Palma, but I think that he has actually made a movie that kind of fits into that category um it's one of the most anti-iraq war films ever made however i think it's a very poorly made film and i wasn't even able to get through a single viewing of it so the film is actually called redacted came out in 2007 um so i'll be le leaving films like that off of the list um if i don't think they're particularly well-made films even though that film on paper, you read the synopsis for it and what it's actually about. It's about the Haditha massacre, the rape and murder of an Iraqi uh, teenager and where the soldiers actually covered up the incident. And this actually happened. The film is kind of done in a docudrama style, but I would never rewatch. I, I just don't enjoy it as a film. So that's going to be a big factor of how I'm actually ranking all these films. I have to personally feel like it's a well-made film with a sort of absorbing narrative that that sucks you in and stays with you now one other thing i'm probably going to get shit for for making this podcast is as other movies i've just left off the list movies that i haven't mentioned now i'll have to admit here on the podcast that my taste in film is uh is definitely probably you know, a little bit on the, the mainstream side. A lot of these films I will be listing are American-made, Hollywood-made films. I'm not going to be listing very many foreign films or indie films in this. And, you know, perhaps that's just my um, having a poor, poor knowledge of all the films made out there. I consider myself a, a film lover, but again you know, my taste might run a little generic for some listening out there. Please forgive me for not listing a whole lot of uh, foreign films or indie productions in this list. And I, of course, uh, if you're a listener of the podcast, um, I would love for you to, to give me your own uh, list or recommendations of movies that I've missed or that you think um, I would really like based on the, the, these lists that I'm going to be talking about. So the first category of films, the first category of political films I'm going to be tackling in the podcast are 10 films 
that I think have really good satire or commentary of American society, either empire, babydom, our materialism, our obsession with fame, how narcissistic we are, how entitled we are. And I feel like these films do a really good job of pulling at a lot of those themes in American society. So I'll start with an honorable mention, and Pierce Redmond's probably going to get irked that I'm only putting this as an honorable mention, but the only reason I am is because I have not seen the film in like 25 years. So I know that it's a good film. Uh, Pierce loves it. I remember it being particularly good, but I would have to see it again more recently to actually put it in this in my top 10 favorite satire political films. And that film is Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts is an interesting movie that kind of went under most people's radar, I think. It was actually directed by Tim Robbins in 1992. It stars him in the lead role. The movie tonally is kind of more presented like a comedy. The character that Tim Robbins plays in the movie, Bob Roberts, does these like funny campaign songs to try to launch his, um, his campaign for Senate. And it has some interesting ties to the Iran-Contra scandal. Definitely go back and check this film out. I should also mention uh, for the rest of this particular podcast, I will warn anybody listening if I'm going to be dropping any spoilers for any of these films. Since, you know, the, I guess the new rule is never spoil a movie no matter how old it is. I find that a little bit ridiculous, but I actually have gotten like angry messages from people for even just tweeting things about like movies that are remakes of like old classic stories where everybody already knows the ending. I mean, some guy, I forgot, I forgot who it was, but some guy actually was genuinely mad at me for explaining the ending of the movie Scrooged, um, which is based on a Christmas story by Charles Dickens, which I, I just assumed everybody had seen and knows the ending of sort of the redemption of Scrooge at the end of that story. I guess not. So I'm going to be careful here and I will actually warn people if there's any spoilers. Since Bob Roberts is on an honorable mention list, I won't even really mention anything else about the story. Just know that it is a mockumentary from the 1990s directed by Tim Robbins um, that has lots of stuff dropped into it about the Iran-Contra scandal. And it's kind of got some false flag right-wing agitator sort of false flag elements in it, which I think are pretty interesting, especially because of what's happening right now during the Trump era. A lot of this stuff in this movie was kind of borderline prophetic. So now that I've gotten past first honorable mention, Bob Roberts, I'll start at number 10, and I'll go down to one of my favorite parody satire films that are commentaries on American culture that I believe have strong politics. Um, starting number 10 is the 2009 adaptation of The Watchmen, the original Watchmen made by Alan Moore, written by Alan Moore for DC Comics is, of course, undeniably a much stronger, much more cutting um, and much more sort of left leaning, uh, bleak political commentary than the film itself ended up being. The way that they changed the ending, so I'm going to have to say a spoiler warning here right now for Watchmen. One of the most controversial parts of the Watchmen adaptation that Zack Snyder did in 2009 
was he actually completely changed the ending of the original comic Watchmen. So spoiler warning, if you have not seen Watchmen, if you have not read it, and you don't want to be spoiled, please skip ahead about five minutes. But Watchmen's original ending in the comic book involved a fake alien invasion. Um, and when I say alien invasion, I don't mean like a bunch of UFOs coming down like War of the World style. I mean this very bizarre incident involving basically like a Lovecraftian giant squid alien corpse being dropped in the middle of Manhattan and sending a psychic shockwave across the country that convinces everybody that aliens are coming to kill us all. Probably not the easiest thing to adapt in a film, but the way that it's done in the comic books, I think is very interesting. It makes the comedian's whole backstory and story arc much more impactful. I think in the film, you see moments uh, that I think are really well done by Jeffrey Dean Morgan playing the comedian, which that's, I think, one of the greatest strengths of Zack Snyder's Watchmen adaptation is uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan's role of the comedian is insanely good. That's one of the things I mainly appreciate about the movie. I think they really, really nail his character in it. Unfortunately, uh, they change his costume a little bit. They don't give him the sort of sex bondage mask <laughs> that he had in the comic book. Um, he's just got more of like a weird movie-style little superhero eye mask on. If you haven't seen Watchmen, you don't know anything about it. I mean, the concept of it, it's pretty simple. It's basically what it, what would the world be like if a group of superheroes existed in the real world? In Alan Moore's version of the real world, um, he sort of amps up the stakes even more than it was during the 1980s when Watchmen was originally written. When he wrote it, Ronald Reagan was still president. But in the comic book, the concept is that the United States won the Vietnam War with the help of a super-powered superhuman named Dr. Manhattan, who was essentially like a god. And when we used him in the Vietnam War, we just destroyed the Vietnamese people and completely obliterated them with his help. And as a result of that, Nixon did not resign. In fact, Nixon managed to stay in the presidency for multiple terms beyond his two terms in the setting, the backdrop for the Watchmen. Uh, Richard Nixon is still the president of the United States. And we are almost at a nuclear confrontation with Russia based on the Soviet-Afghanistan war, the CIA proxy war that we launched there. So in the comic book, the backdrop is the doomsday clock is almost at midnight. And, and, and it's sort of implied that because we became more militaristic and because we won the Vietnam War, we were actually putting ourselves in a more precarious position closer to nuclear Armageddon than normal reality had, like our real reality had. So that's the backdrop for it. You have basically one of the superheroes on this team named the Comedian, who was essentially like a CIA mercenary, like death squad commander. I'm not sure who he's supposed to really be a composite of in the comic book. Um, but then you also have a character named Rorschach in the comic book that's almost supposed to be like a real-life representation of what Batman would be like. Um, that Batman would actually be a reactionary conservative who hated society and was cleaning up all the street crime, but ended up basically just becoming like a reactionary conservative monster. 
Um, even though Rorschach is supposed to have this sort of moral side, um, he's represented in the comic book almost like this just kind of fucked up reactionary conservative dude uh, who's really, really violent. And there are definitely some serious flaws in the Watchmen movie. It's an impressively made film, though, for a lot of reasons. I mean, even though Zack Snyder got a lot of shit for botching the adaptation, a lot of people felt it was just like taxidermy, that he had visually gotten the movie perfectly dialed in, but everything else felt really artificial and, and weird about it. People even complained that some of the lines from the movie were taken straight from the comic book. I can understand some of those complaints. My complaints with the film is that they made some of the characters action scenes and scenes in the movie way more violent and bloody and gory than it made sense to make them. It was unnecessary and it just kind of took you out of the movie a little bit. It was strange. And it makes me think that Zack Snyder just doesn't, it's some, there's just some basic things about storytelling that he just does not understand. You know, while the movie, in some ways, he's responsible for making the movie so good in certain ways, He's also responsible for making it bad and jarring in other ways that and th that put it all the way down at the my 10th favorite movie in this regard. Otherwise, I would have ranked it higher because I think all the other films I'm about to list are actually much more competently made films all around than Watchmen. But Watchmen is definitely worth a watch and it's one of the only post-2000s movies that, that I've seen that has such a harsh view of the United States. And that comes across very much straight from Alan Moore's comic book. Um, another honorable mention, I guess, is V for Vendetta. That's more of a just a, that's not really a parody of American society. That's another mo film that was based off of an Alan Moore comic book. Of course, the film turned it all into a commentary sort of about gay rights. Not, not the worst way to interpret it for the modern era, but I think it loses something in the film adaptation where in the original story of V for Vendetta, it's much more about just fascism as a whole and how that would play out sort of on a modern, in the modern era. So number nine on this list is the film by Spike Lee called Bamboozled from 2000. Now, here's a quote from Roger Ebert about Bamboozled that I think kind of sums up the way that most people reacted to this movie. Uh, it's not one of Spike Lee's highest-viewed movies. It actually sits right now at a 48% rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Roger Ebert gave the film two out of four stars and said, The film is a satirical attack on the way TV uses and misuses African-American images, but many viewers will leave the theater thinking Lee has misused them himself. And that kind of perfectly encapsulates what the movie is really about, because the concept for it is, is basically a commentary on the way that major corporations, white society, American society, exploit African-American imagery and African-Americans for their own entertainment. But in this movie, it's an imaginary scenario about erudite black TV writer who comes up with this kind of evil, devious plan to pitch an actual minstrel theater show to a top network executive, and it actually gets greenlit for release. And the entire movie shows 
how how much it's embraced by society and how it becomes like one of the most popular shows in the country. It's a actually a really dark and disturbing movie in many ways, especially the way that it ends. Visually speaking, it's one of Spike Lee's only movies that I've seen that seems to be filmed on like a DV digital video camera, like like some of those late 90s indie films were, and has an unusual look to it. Uh, some of it seems really improvised. Um, Michael Rappaport in it is incredible. He he's plays the role of like the racist network executive who's basically like in love with black culture, but he's actually deeply racist and thinks all these racist stereotypes are hilarious and is the one who pushes this show onto the air. It stars Damon Wayans, Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Michael Rappaport, Paul Mooney is great in it. And the film actually did very poorly at the box office. Uh, it, it lost money. It was filmed for $10 million, and it only made about $2.5 million at the box office. But for my money, um, this is one of the strongest Spike Lee films in terms of political commentary. He has a lot of other great movies that, I mean, obviously have great political commentary in them, but I think that some of them kind of feel a little dated now. And that's not necessarily his fault. A lot of people have copied and sort of lifted from his style. But Bamboozled, to me, is one of the most interesting and timeless films he made. And I think it actually grows in relevance every year. So number eight on my list of parody and satire political movies is uh, a Joe Dante film from 1990, a little film called Gremlins 2. And the reason I didn't put Gremlins 1 on here is because it doesn't really have any of the commentary or parody about American society that Gremlins 2 is just like jam-packed with. The first movie is interesting because it's more just representing the Gremlins as like the classic, you know, the Gremlins that they even meant have a character um, who's sort of portrayed as like a xenophobic racist next-door neighbor um, explain that he had to fight off the Gremlins during like World War II it had some commentary on Western society where this dude wants to buy his son a Christmas present. So he buys this like basically like an ancient Chinese mythical animal called the Mogwai that you're not supposed to feed after midnight. Uh, you're not supposed to put water on. And of course, the kid, you know, growing up in the suburbs do does all these things wrong. He breaks every rule. And spoiler alert for the ending of Gremlins, it ends with the old Chinese shop owner coming back finding the mogwai and taking it back and saying like you do not understand the rules like this is why we don't let people like you have these things it's basically like saying like white westerners like you fucked up again dude like you don't know how to do shit and gremlins 2 i think takes that concept even further where it's like it starts with corporate developers basically trying to buy this old chinese shop owner store he refuses to sell it to them uh, they bulldoze the store down, and Gizmo, the Mogwai from Gremlins 1, he escapes into the, into New York City. So that's how the movie starts. Um, it's kind of a really dark opening. So essentially, the entire backdrop of Gremlins 2 takes place inside of a building called the Clamp Building, run by a real estate developer slash TV station owner named Daniel Clamp, Clearly, this was a parody of Donald Trump. Now, the makers of Gremlins 2 have been asked about this. Uh, there was a Wired Magazine article from March 2016. It says, 
how the Gremlins 2 creators feel about their own Donald Trump parody now. And it interviews Joe Dante and some of the people on the movie. And they explain that the character Daniel Clamp in the film was actually supposed to be a, a mixture of Donald Trump and Ted Turner, uh, the former owner of CNN. Now, the movie does a really good job of basically showing you what would happen if the gremlins had an unlimited resource supply to breed and multiply inside this building and how they would basically destroy themselves like what 48 hour time frame do all of the terrible things that like humanity has always done throughout history but in like a tiny accelerated window and it's done in a really silly way i mean it's not it's not a serious movie at all but it tackles a lot of issues like gmos uh genetic engineering chimeras, uh, materialism, um, the absurdity of technology, the convenience of technology. Uh, there, there's a talking elevator in the movie um, that's supposed to be a smart elevator that's always fucking up. The movie has this theme of smart devices um, constantly fucking up in the movie and inconveniencing people. Um, and this was made like in the early 90s, so very ahead of its time in that regard. But yeah, uh, I recommend everybody check that out. It originally, I did not. I actually thought it was like a crappy sequel when I remember seeing it a long time ago. But I feel that it's now it's kind of has a really special place in my heart because of how relevant a lot of the commentary in that movie is now. So number seven on this list of uh, political satires is the 1997 Paul Verhoeven science fiction movie Starship Troopers. This is another movie that I actually hated. When I first saw it, I think I was 17 when it first came out in the theaters. I remember hating the CGI. I remember thinking it just looked bad. Um, I didn't understand it. I mean, I actually did not even understand that it was a parody or a satire at all when I had seen it. Um, apparently, Robert Heinlein, the author of the original book Starship Troopers, was making like a pro-war, kind of like pro-militarism style story about going to fight these alien creatures that have threatened humanity. But in the film, Paul Verhoeven kind of flips that paradigm upside down and shows how like fascistic and Nazi-like and just how cartoonish that military mindset is. And that's kind of what the whole movie is about in a weird way. Um, it, it really presents all these people in a very cartoonish uh, kind of hubristic way even though spoilers by the end of the movie they ended up winning and defeating the aliens it still has this bizarre undercurrent going through the whole movie that like all these soldiers with the exception of maybe a few of them are like basically just like fascist believers in totalitarianism and like using themselves as cannon fodder so if you have not seen starship troopers um believe it or not it actually has some intelligent commentary in it and it's actually aged quite well it's one of those other movies that the more time passes i feel like the stronger it gets number sixth on my list of political satire movies this movie is not really a comedy it's not really a sci-fi movie exactly it's not really a thriller it's hard to pin down what this movie is as a genre and this is the 2006 film southland tales um, directed by, written and directed by Richard Kelly, uh, the guy who made Donnie Darko. It's actually one of the only movies I've seen 
ever. Um, and this is actually probably one of the moments where I was like, I kind of really like this movie. Um, where they, where a character actually uses the word neocons in it, and I think that was particularly funny. Um, the line in the movie where it's used is just really hilarious. The reason why this movie really sticks with me now, especially um, when it came out, it was actually really visceral and really disturbing in a lot of ways because it came out in 2006 when the Iraq war was still you know, all over the media. It was still headlines every day. So the movie takes place in the near future, 2008. And it takes place after a July 4th nuclear bombing uh, that hit two towns in Texas, El Paso and Abilene. I won't really go into the plot of this. I won't really want to spoil the plot of the movie very much. I mean, it's it involves a lot of interesting things, commentary on different things. It involves um, people trying to stage a race war. Um, it involves like radical political groups who act like just totally insane people. Sniper towers with like Iraq war veterans that have like scars and are disfigured uh, that have all these like sniper towers around that just like shoot people who act, act out of line. But one of the most, I mean, the movie opens up with an extremely chilling scene of a child's birthday party filmed on like a home video camera, VHS camera, totally normal child's birthday party footage. And then you just see the screen, the sky flash completely white with a nuclear explosion in the background. One of the most chilling opening scenes for a movie, honestly, ever. And the movie, you know, it's not perfect. It's got its flaws. It's tonally kind of a weird roller coaster. I wouldn't say it's tonally a mess, but it's got some really weird tonal shifts in the movie. Um, there's some jarring musical numbers that happen that I'm kind of, you know, I'm still not on board with. But overall, I mean... Uh, for who, the cast of the movie is like fascinatingly put together. It stars The Rock, it stars Sean William Scott, Sarah uh, Michelle Geller, Mandy Moore, Justin Timberlake, Wallace Shawn. And I, I would argue this is easily The Rock's best movie um, by far. <laughs> Ranking number fifth on my list is a 1985 Terry Gilliam film, Brazil. A lot of people consider this Terry Gilliam's strongest film i think it's definitely up there uh with being his one of his strongest movies uh the movie brazil if, if you have not seen it it takes place in sort of an alternate reality undefined exactly how far in the future it is dystopian depressing bleak corporate future where everything is just this overwhelming towering bureaucracy um, that has ruined society. Main character is played by Jonathan Price. Uh, Robert De Niro is also in the film. So is Bob Hoskins and Ian Holm. The movie revolves around Jonathan Price's character named Sam Laurie. His character uh, is basically assigned the task of figuring out what happened in this essentially a typographical error where the bureaucracy that he works for accidentally arrests and murders um, this random guy named Archibald Buttle, where instead of Archibald Buttle, uh, they were actually supposed to go after Archibald Tuttle. So this guy in Brazil 
is assigned to basically figuring out what happened and trying to rectify or fix that problem. But then when he does, he realizes that an innocent guy was killed. And the closer he gets to trying to like figure things out, um, the more he gets under the crosshairs of this weird totalitarian system that he works for. And the movie has a very disturbing and depressing ending. And I won't really say much more than that, but don't expect a happy ending with this film. And I think actually that might be one of the only Terry Gilliam films I've put on this list because he didn't really make very many movies. I don't think that had this strong of a commentary in them. So coming number fourth on my list of satirical political movies is they live a John Carpenter film from 1988. And even though this movie has no references to corporations or government officials directly, um, what it does is it's sort of a wonderful 1984-style commentary on modern society under the guise of an alien invasion movie. Sort of a secret alien invasion movie. The premise of They Live is that aliens have already invaded the United States and are using powerful broadcasting antennas to hypnotize us and to brainwash us into consuming, breeding, staying asleep. It's basically become a meme now among sort of like the red pill conspiracy community online. Uh, one of the themes of the movie is that these special glasses invented by people in the human resistance that can actually see through the aliens' transmissions and to actually see the underlying message under underneath. So Roddy Roddy Piper's character puts on these glasses and he's just looking at normal billboards like that advertise products. And when he puts the glasses on, they say things like obey or consume uh, just behind the actual imagery on the billboard. So perhaps not the most subtle commentary ever. It's actually quite heavy-handed, but... It's one of the only movies, sci-fi movies or otherwise, or horror movies really, that tries to take a bunch of things from 1984 and wrap them up into like a horror movie plot. That aspect of it to me is very interesting. It's definitely not one of my favorite John Carpenter films. I would say it's probably not even in my top five. But as far as a satire and a parody of American society and consumerism and and brainwashing and corporate indoctrination, there really is no better movie uh, that I can think of from, from the 1980s in that regard. So for that reason, They Live is number four on this list. Uh, number three on this list is another Paul Verhoeven film, Robocop from 1987. I think Robocop is also probably one of the strongest anti-corporate commentary films from the 1980s even though people a lot of our listeners um rightfully would say that large parts of the movie are what people call copaganda um it sort of tries to show the regular uh beat cops and the police force as these heroic underdogs that are trying to fight against a corporate takeover of their police force by this company called ocp and ocp sort of decides to launch this pilot program of a RoboCop to show the city that they don't need regular police anymore and that the police fucking suck. But of course, the people in OCP are directly working with the, you know, the, the biggest street gangs in Detroit to try to basically create a Hegelian dialect problem-reaction-solution type paradigm. But the movie is incredibly well done, 
it's filled with hilarious and cutting satire about advertising corporations about the media um the media sensationalizing murder and death um i think there's even a scene in it where it shows like a how like some u.s weapons satellite malfunction and like shot a giant laser down to the planet killing like hundreds by accident so there's these random things in the movie that like the news will cover that just like show how fucked up america is in the future and how just like off the rails it's become uh so i highly recommend checking that film out um it's i would say it's paul verhoven's i I don't want to say it's his best film i think total recall might be his best film but it, it may be his second best film but it's i would say it's cleaner than total recall it feels like there's something grittier about it there's something more visceral about robocop and actually, uh, the sequel to RoboCop is interesting. It wasn't made by Paul Verhoeven. Uh, it was made by someone else, but it really tries to carry over the spirit, the tone, and the commentary from RoboCop 1. Or RoboCop 1. And it does a particularly good job of that. Um, it kind of reminds me of how the sequel to Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, wasn't done by Clive Barker, but really carries over the spirit of that original movie and feels almost like it's done by Clive Barker. Um, definitely not as good as the original. Um, RoboCop one is extremely good. RoboCop two is almost more of a drug war eighties propaganda movie, even though it has a lot of stuff in it. That's a commentary on American society. It's more of a typical eighties, you know, kind of like the criminals are the bad ones kind of a movie. Um, and in, in RoboCop, uh, you know, they really show that the highest levels uh, in this corporation, in OCP, or, you know, almost at the highest levels, are actually the real evil players in the film. It's not the low-level people. And most of the films I've just listed, they don't really fall under my qualification that I open this podcast with, saying that I'm judging most of these movies based on how evil the government or corporate antagonists are in the film or how high up they are in the government or corporation. I think RoboCop is probably the first one on this list that really does fall under that. I mean, without spoiling the ending of RoboCop, it's pleasantly surprising, I think, how many characters they portrayed and are just having like no morality and being just the scummiest people on earth. Coming number two on my list of satire political movies is Man Bites Dog uh, from 1992. Um, it was made uh, by a group of Belgian filmmakers. It's actually one of the only Belgian films I've ever seen. So if anybody has any other Belgian films that they'd like to recommend to me that are, that are as good as this one or similar, uh, please put them in the comments. But uh, the film has a different title completely in France, which translates to it happened near your home. It's one of the, it's probably my favorite mockumentary film ever. The concept is kind of similar to natural born killers or the film Henry portrait of a serial killer. It's trying to be like a fly on the wall view of a career killer. Basically the difference between this movie and those is that this film mind bites dog is played like a comedy uh, a dark comedy mockumentary um it's meant to be 
a group of documentary filmmakers following around this sort of charismatic, silly, erudite, intellectual serial killer, and they celebrate and basically become participants in his own murders over time. So not only is it a commentary on how much the news and the media or people making documentary films or or people documenting things actually help exacerbate those things that they're documenting or actually become participants in them. So it's a commentary on that general concept. It kind of actually reminds me of that. What's that movie with? I forgot the name. People will probably remember listening. That movie with Jake Gyllenhaal that came out a few years ago where he's like the dirty photographer journalist who goes and finds uh, car wrecks and murders and tries to take pictures of them to get on the news. Um, it's a commentary similar to that movie, but that's not even like the main commentary I get from Man Bites Dog. One, to me, one of my favorite elements of it is how the main character is portrayed. He's, they try to make him as charismatic, like you want to hang out with this guy and have a beer with him. So there's this really disturbing scene where the main character, the killer, Ben, um, he goes into some, somebody's apartment to steal, to just to like rob them. And he ends up having to murder a child who's trying to escape, who happened to be home at the time. And in this scene, it's very, very disturbing. And they actually had to cut it out of the film in order for it to get an NC-17 release in the United States, where Ben is actually sitting near this child while putting a pillow over his face, smothering him while the children are struggling, explaining calmly and casually why it's not his preferred thing to kill kids and why it's like inconvenient for what he does and the way he's sort of casually explaining it while murdering the child is to me like this amazing juxtaposition that it just reminds me a lot of the way politicians have this disconnect between their own actions and what they actually do uh, killing kids killing tons of innocent people um, through american bombs so I, I just find that scene particularly haunting and the movie is a real rough ride. If you have a weak stomach, you don't like horror movies, um, this movie is definitely not for you because even though it's presented tonally like a comedy, uh, it, there are moments of it where it shows death, him killing people in a way that's like very brutal and very graphic. Just as an example of the kind of comedic tone this movie has and how dark it is, the opening scene of the movie is the serial killer explaining to the camera with like a bundled body in a bag how he has to put more rocks and more weight in these dead body bags that he disposes of in the river um, depending on how large the person is. And he starts going into how much ballast or weight is needed for a person who is a midget versus like a regular size uh, person. Um, so if you don't find that kind of stuff funny or, or worth watching... Um, you'll probably know within the first five minutes of the movie if this is the movie for you. But Man Bites Dog is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, but the reason why it doesn't rank number one on this list is because there is another film that I think is has a more powerful um, sort of timeless message to it. And this movie has kind of gone down in history as being a classic. Um, it's considered one of Peter Sellers' best performances and also one of his last performances of the film as being there from 1979 and the politics in this movie maybe not as obvious um, as some of the other movies I listed here but 
the ending of the movie, uh, without spoiling it at all, um, I don't even going to issue a spoiler warning here because I don't even want to risk someone accidentally he- scrolling right to this part and hearing it. But uh, the ending of the movie is so powerful um, that I think that alone is sort of what pushes it to number one. Um, and basically the theme of the movie is uh, there's a rich, rich person um, who had uh, some staff um, and one of the people on their staff, one of their butlers, is a guy who, and I don't know if they ever really say exactly what's what he is in the movie. It seems like he's either high-functioning autistic, um, really slow, n- not all there. He's kind of like a man-child, a very simplistic, sort of arrested development uh, kind of a guy who was able to function in this environment of being the helper uh, for this rich person. And when the guy dies, he just sort of goes off on his own and doesn't really know what to do with his life. Um, he, this is, was his whole life. And he's just this really simple guy. But as the movie progresses, he sort of starts touching people in these like deeply spiritual ways by saying really simplistic, kind of dumb-sounding things, but that somehow resonates with these people to such a degree where, as the movie progresses, he actually meets and becomes friends with the President of the United States and says something like, with some kind of wisdom to the president where the president repeats it on TV and credits him. And the character's name is Chauncey Gardner in the movie. And it sort of explodes him and catapults him into this famous position. Like he's almost becomes like the Dalai Lama or something like the spiritual advisor uh, to the president of the United States. There's this great scene in the movie. It's not political, but I think it's like one of the best memorable sex scenes from any movie ever. It's a it's a scene where this older attractive lady is trying to flirt with him and trying to initiate sex with him, and he just keeps saying, "I like to watch." For this character, Chauncey Gardner, all he does in the movie is just watch TV and like re- mostly repeats lines from commercials and TV shows he watches. So the woman thinks that he means he wants to watch her masturbate. So she starts masturbating and he's just watching TV, not looking at her, flipping through the remote while she's just enamored by his presence and doesn't even notice that he's not watching her. It's one of the most hilarious scenes in any movie ever. Um, and it goes on for an awkwardly long time. So highly recommend being there. Being there ranks number one in my um, satire uh, commentary of American society political movies list. So let's move on to the next category, which I guess um, probably more appealing to most of our listeners of this podcast, I would imagine. And this category that I'm moving on to now is uh, the category of political thrillers or dramas, and specifically fictional ones, uh, ones that are not based on real events or real people. So number 10th on my list Uh, starting from 10 going down to one is a really interesting movie that is it's old uh, had a screenplay written by rod serling which is interesting it's not a supernatural or um, sci-fi film Um, and it was actually a a film that was allowed to use real sets in the white house under the the permission of current president john f kennedy um so What's interesting about this movie is uh, it was actually brought to my attention by a former guest 
a previous guest we had on our podcast about two months ago, Aaron Good, um, our episode on SCAD, State Crimes Against Democracy, he brings up this movie in this in the subject of talking about the Kennedy assassination because what's really interesting about this film is it's a political thriller done in 1964 um, about how a secret group of uh, people in the military form a conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States for trying to have a disarmament treaty with the Soviet Union. Um, so that's actually really, really interesting because a lot of conspiracy people or just a lot of historians over the years who believe Kennedy was assassinated by some kind of internal U.S. government apparatus, deep state coup, um, have long believed that the reason why Kennedy was assassinated by this coup is because of his sort of rapprochement and his attempts to dial things back with the Soviet Union, to dial things down with Cuba, and they had simply had enough um, with his lack of, I guess, stomach to risk nuclear war uh, like they wanted him to. So this this movie, um, it's a little slow burn. It's kind of a, a, you know, it's not too atypical of a drama from 1964. It's in black and white. Um, it stars Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster, uh, and Ava Gardner. And definitely check this movie out. Um, I just actually got a chance to recently watch it, and I was really impressed um, with not just the filmmaking style of it, but the sort of the low-key realistic feel that it has. It's not over-the-top. Um, it actually seems like something that could have actually happened. So in terms of ranking this on the scale of something that it could have actually happened... I'd say I'd give this like a 9 out of 10. And then as far as how high up are the government officials that are evil in this movie, um, all the way up until uh, the president. So they go to like the highest levels, except the, the plot is they're trying to take out the president. So um, so that's, that's pretty impressive as well, um, to have a film from that time period showing people in the U.S. government um, that were this evil, who basically a lot of the, you know, the people who conspired against the president in this movie shared the opinion of a large number of Americans in the United States about the Soviet Union, that they wanted us to like actually attack them and first strike them and all this shit. So coming at number nine on my list is a movie, um, one, I, actually I think it's the only Richard Donner movie uh, directed movie on on this list at all. Um, Richard Donner made, made this weird movie in 1997 with Mel Gibson called Conspiracy Theory. Um, and this is another movie uh, that kind of dabbles in conspiracy theory culture from the time period. Uh, it does it in a different way than like the X-Files did, where a lot of X-Files stories were sort of based or concocted out of sort of conspiracy narratives. Um, this movie kind of takes a broader approach to that, where they they basically imply that this one character who runs a lone gunman-style um, news, independent newspaper about conspiracy theories has finally discovered accidentally one con- crazy-sounding conspiracy theory that actually ended up being real. And without spoiling too much of the movie, this is how over the top the plot is. Basically, this kind of wacky, um, you know, arguably mentally ill conspiracy guy who runs a play- paper played by Mel Gibson stumbles upon a conspiracy involving generating fake earthquakes to assassinate world leaders. 
um, without basically the concept would be no one would ever suspect an earthquake was, you know, an assassination because it's such a natural event. So he, he, he kind of stumbles upon this and a group of nefarious CIA agents basically descend on him, um, burn his, his offices down. Um, actually, no, they don't technically burn it down. He's got like a little fail safe thing where he, he burns it down himself because that's how paranoid he is about like his work being discovered. Um, Julia Roberts is in it. Uh, the movie itself as a film, um, it definitely has some serious problems tonally shifting all over the place and in kind of jarring ways. The ending itself of the movie, um, takes a much more serious tone that I feel like kind of lessens the impact of it somewhat. Uh, but one of the greatest things about this movie is that Patrick Stewart plays an evil um, CIA officer who's basically trying to assassinate Mel Gibson's character in the film. And he does a great job. It's one of the only times, actually, maybe besides Green Room, where Patrick Stewart plays a villain. So uh, definitely check that movie out. Um, they even reference John Hinckley in the movie in a weird way. And I don't really know what the point of this is. Uh, it seems kind of pointless, but I guess I should mention it that Mel Gibson's character can constantly buys copies of catcher in the rye, uh, which is something that John Hinckley, uh, the attempted assassin of R Ronald Reagan apparently did too. And it's kind of, I guess that's taken from that. I'm not really sure what they're implying with that in the movie. Um, it, but it's, it's in there. Um, the next movie on my list, number eight, on my fictional political thrillers drama list, is the remake, not the original, of Manchurian Candidate. Um, for you know, the the term Manchurian Candidate has become popularized again because of the whole Trump Russia scandal. But originally, um, what it came from was a movie about the Soviet Union basically brainwashing and programming an American assassin uh, to carry out an assassination. And obviously this is very Cold War, paranoia kind of movie. It's definitely anti, you know, fear-mongering about the Soviet Union, implying that they have these very sophisticated abilities to basically program people that the United States doesn't have. I don't particularly like the original film. I, I think that it's actually a product of a paranoid, militaristic... Um, climate uh, that it has actually politics that I don't share um, and that I reject. However, the the remake of Manchurian Candidate is completely different. Um, it came out during a time, uh, 2004, when the Iraq War was still very, very fresh on people's minds. Um, and it's got some really dark, dark stuff in it. I mean, it, it, there's actual scenes in it showing... Denzel Washington's character in the movie is the Manchurian candidate, I believe. And basically, uh, during the Gulf War, I think it's actually supposed to take place during the first Gulf War, soldiers were um, basically taken into a secret program by some kind of like private contracting firm and then brainwashed to become assassins. And in some of this video footage they show of these like training brainwashing sessions, it shows them and it's pretty dark it shows them actually training soldiers to just like shoot their fellow soldiers like in a room as an experiment and stuff and this is all in the movie um but the twist on this movie that makes it better than the original 
is that this is a, a not a Manchurian candidate program by the Soviet Union or a foreign government. Um, it's the it's a Manchurian candidate programmed uh, by a corporation. So it's it's actually two things. So there's an assassin that's basically trained to kill uh, politicians. And then you also have a politician who's been brainwashed and planted by a corporation, like programmed to basically be a surrogate for a corporation. So it's kind of taking that concept of like a bought and paid for politician by a corporation, literally like taking it to the next step. Like he's literally being programmed and brainwashed by like a Manchurian candidate program. Uh, the movie stars Liev Schreiber, Denzel Washington, Meryl Streep. Um, it's directed by the guy who directed Silence of the Lambs. Um, it's probably one of the only other movies of his that I actually really like. Um, so definitely check that out. Uh, the director's name is Jonathan Demi. So the next movie coming on this list, number seven, is the 1977 uh, paranoid, I guess it would be called a conspiracy thriller, called Capricorn One. Um, I have to admit, just out of the gates, the film itself, uh, just as... It, from a filmmaking perspective, I don't think it's particularly strong. But what's really strong in this movie is the story content and just how dark it is. And also how evil it portrays the U.S. government. And not just individual agents. This is not a movie that makes it seem like these low-level agents are going rogue. This is basically implying that NASA, the FBI, um, and uh, pretty much the entire U.S. government um, was in on a conspiracy to fake a Mars landing mission uh, with three astronauts. And the movie is really, really dark because basically what happens is um, these astronauts actually believe they're going to Mars. They train for it and everything. And as soon as they're about to launch, um, a group of people come to them and say, we need to sort of usher you away to the secret location because the life support system on the, the spaceship uh, would have killed you. So we need to help, you need to help us counterfeit and essentially make hoax footage of you landing on Mars. So they then usher them to a soundstage that's already all set up with the Mars lander and all this shit. And uh, the astronauts are dumb enough to do it. Um, and after they do it, um, the spaceship that was actually sent into the atmosphere uh, that was supposed to have the astronauts in it because they still launched the spaceship in you know into orbit uh it burns up on re-entry so basically what happens is uh the astronauts realize um when they're when they were actually supposed to leave that they can't leave now because the u.s government needs to kill them to get to maintain their story so a lot of this movie actually is is uh it's kind of harrowing it shows the astronauts um basically crash and landing in a desert and like basically trying to survive escaping from the U.S. government officials in the fucking desert. And it's a, it's a particularly dark movie in this regard. So I think just the story content, even though it's definitely not one of my favorite films, just in general, um, I think the story content makes it interesting enough and hard enough against the U.S. government uh, to land on this list, for sure. And uh, the movie actually stars O.J. Simpson in a serious role and James Brolin. Uh, so, and Elliot Gold. Um, so yeah, definitely check out Capricorn one. 
Uh, number six on this list, there's going to be people out there who will probably make fun of me for this since it's a Marvel film, a Marvel Disney production. But I would argue that uh, Captain America Winter Soldier is one of the only mi- movies, uh, and also, and, and, and this is, I, I, I would challenge you to find any other mainstream tentpole Hollywood movie that challenged the Obama administration's sort of foreign policy and domestic policy um, like this movie did. Um, even though this movie does not take place, you know, Obama's not the president in the movie. I don't even fucking know who's the president in Marvel movies. It's some nobody actor. I think they've actually like changed the president random times uh, throughout uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, that's a, that's something that actually somebody listening should should figure out for me. It's like, it, has the president remained the same person or have they like changed presidents uh, in the MCU so far? Who is the president? Um, but in Captain America Winter Soldier, um, the plot is basically S.H.I.E.L.D., which is the super secret organization. It's kind of like the CIA or like even more secret than the CIA, uh, has been infiltrated by Hydra, which are basically like the Nazis. Um, and they've been infiltrated like since their very beginning of their existence, and, uh, you know, there's obvious references there to Operation Paperclip, um, references to uh, the fascist strain uh, that was evident in the U.S. government after World War II, not just from working with Nazi scientists, but the tactics that were adopted. And then also, the, um, without spoiling too much of the ending, basically the movie is sort of a giant commentary uh, running underneath the whole thing about pre-crime and the idea of targeted assassinations. Um, eliminating threats before they appear. And Captain America, um, you know, even though classically in the comic books, he's sort of a generic representation of like, you know, American patriotism. In this movie, he uh, basically fights against his own superiors in S.H.I.E.L.D., realizes they're infiltrated and goes rogue himself and becomes a fugitive, um, being chased down by S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA. And uh, I think just for the Obama era commentary in it alone and for having that appear in a mainstream film without having any hint of being like conservative propaganda in any way because you know a lot of the criticism coming towards obama during that time period was very generic like conservative talking points this movie's not um and i will concede that there is a hint of like anti-russian stuff in the movie because the winter soldier character was sort of like supposed to be like a manchurian candidate program by you know like a soviet program um but in the film he's being used by american operatives who are secret hydra agents um to do shit to do secret assassinations uh captain america winter soldier came out in 2014 and it's directed by the uh, Russo brothers, um, who are the same, you know, f- Marvel uh, saviors, I guess, who were were handed over um, what it seemed like Joss Whedon was originally going to be in charge of, which is the Avengers franchise. Uh, after Joss Whedon left Age of Ultron, and I think left Marvel for good, Russo brothers have sort of taken the top dog position there. And I got to say, I don't think they're ever going to make a film as good as Captain America Winter Soldier. Um, again, unless they go to like smaller scale films, apparently their next film is going to be a film about Iraq war veterans. 
Um, specifically, I guess one of them is going to be played by Tom Holland, the guy who plays Spider-Man, and he's going to be addicted to opioids. So maybe they're going back to criticizing U.S. foreign policy with that movie. Uh, I'm interested to see Tom Holland playing a fucking junkie veteran, and that that'll be interesting. Um, the next movie on my list, number five, is uh, The Pelican Brief. Starring, um, again, Denzel Washington uh, and uh, Julia Roberts. And this is based on John Grisham book. Um, directed by a guy named Alan J. Pakula. I've never actually heard of him. But uh, the movie is actually, I mean, it's very, very dark. It is not... Um, an indictment of anybody in the U.S. government, but it is an indictment of an oligarch sort of billionaire um, type character in the movie. And basically what happens is the movie starts with the assassination of two Supreme Court justices. And this is not sort of a movie about like an intrepid reporter who uncovers something, even though Denzel Washington does play the role of a, of a journalist in it. Um, what's so interesting about this movie is that it shows how someone very small, low on the totem pole, who's really obscure, if they write something true enough that it uncovers a conspiracy, uh, their life could potentially be in danger. And Julia Roberts' character um, plays this uh or Julia Roberts' character, Darby Shaw, um, in the film. Uh, she's, a, she's a law student, and she gives a little brief um, to her professor about why she thinks these two Supreme Court justices were killed. And she concocts a theory, essentially, implying that the reason why they were killed is because they would have ruled a particular way on this like big corporate lawsuit uh, legal case that was coming down. And... She ends up basically being right that these two Supreme Court justices were murdered um, by someone from a major company that did not want the ruling to land in a particular way. Um, the movie is a great thriller. Um, lots of sort of chase sequences, uh, like lots of sort of scary, tense moments. Um, it's to me, it's kind of like a classic thriller. Uh, probably one of the better thrillers to come out of the 1990s. It came out in 1993, and it's a little bit of a long, slow burn. Um, it's definitely not as like exciting and as tense and kind of white knuckle feeling as other thrillers. Um, it's almost it's over two hours long, um, but I think it's a really well made um, film that has aged very well over time. And in terms of how evil did they make the the corporate billionaire character in this movie? I mean, I'd say like ten out of ten evil. Um, you know, trying to assassinate. It, this like legal student basically uh one of my favorite films and probably one of my favorite maybe top 3 Alfred Hitchcock movies is a 1959 film it's a classic uh everybody's probably at least seen the movie poster for it uh starring Cary Grant North by Northwest uh the iconic you know, movie poster or image of like a propeller plane chasing this guy in an empty field. Um, I remember seeing the the poster when I was a kid and not really understanding or thinking twice about it. Um, the movie is fucking amazing. 
uh, and it's it's one of Cary Grant's best roles as well. Um, and I'll just give you a little overview of the plot, hopefully without spoiling anything. Um, so the movie kind of relies on a, a, a generic premise of mistaken identity, where uh, some Soviet agents um, think that Cary Grant is like a secret American spy and essentially try to uh, to stage his death. Um, they kidnap him. Um, they fill his body with alcohol to make it look like he got drunk and in a car, and then they just put him in a car and make him drive. So with the with the goal of trying to get him to kill himself. So there's this great scene where he's trying to drive like completely shit faced, um, you know, in an assassination attempt, um, and that's kind of how the movie starts. But eventually, what happens is an unnamed. They don't. They don't say it's the CIA, but it probably is in the movie. And that's a, a point against it, I would say, is by not saying that it's the CIA. But basically, a government, U.S. government agency realizes that Cary Grant's character has been mistaken uh, for this secret agent by the Soviet Union, and they actually keep it that way because they don't want to fuck up their own operation um, because they want this guy. Um, to they don't want people to know that that Cary Grant's character isn't this guy, so the CIA, uh, like basically the Soviet Union and the CIA agents are both fucking with him, and uh, basically just making him uh, fear for his life and go on the run. And uh, it's got some really iconic moments. Uh, obviously, the crop duster prop plane part is, I mean, it's it's one of the most chilling moments I think in any film. And uh, there's a great chase sequence at Mount Rushmore in the third act of the movie. So I would say this this movie ranks number four on the list, not because it's the strongest politics of any of these movies, or it has like the strongest anti-government or anti-corporate message, but because it's just a fucking excellently made film. Um, it's definitely one of Hitchcock's best. So uh, for that reason, it's number four. Coming at number three on my list of uh, fictional political thrillers and dramas is the 1996 film adaptation of the Kurt Vonnegut book, Mother Night. Um, This is not a perfect film by any means. It was made on a very low budget. It was directed by a guy named Keith Gordon. Um, And if you don't recognize him as a director... You probably won't. You probably recognize him as the lead actor in the the film adaptation of the Stephen King book, Christine. Uh, he plays a lead character in Christine that sort of succumbs to the the car's powers, um, and he's actually I think even stars in the film too. Um, he's got a, a small role, but um, this movie stars Nick Nolte, Alan Arkin, Kirsten Dunst, John Goodman, um, and. The movie, I mean, the story Mother Night uh, by Kurt Vonnegut, and the movie is actually very, very, very faithful uh, to the book. Um, it's one of those rare examples of a movie that's just completely reliant on the book, doesn't change anything, doesn't include everything, but it also like stays extremely faithful to the story. Um, but the, the story is basically like this. Um, It's sort of this mindfuck of a story. Um, Howard Campbell is the main character in it. And the, the story kind of goes back and forth through time. It starts with him sitting in an Israeli jail. And then you learn 
that this character was actually recruited by a mysterious guy who's part of the American government during World War II um, to become a spy for America. The reason they approach him is because he is a German language playwright um, who happened to be American during Weimar Germany. So basically they recruit him um, to be a spy. And this guy is such a good writer and such a good orator, he's a playwright, that he works his way all the way up through the Nazi government into uh, being becoming a Nazi propagandist. Um, and interestingly, uh, on these broadcasts, um, he did it in English language because the Nazis wanted him to spread his message, you know, in other, you know, to other Western states, not just inside Germany. Um, during all these speeches, of course, during all his like little anti-Semitic rants he would do on the radio, uh, they were filled with secret military code instructed to him by uh, his recruiter from America. But he does such a good job playing a Nazi and does so much damage spreading propaganda that when basically the Israeli government goes on like a Nazi hunt after World War II to track down all the uh, retired or you know escaped Nazis, they cannot tell at all that he wasn't a real Nazi. I mean, the idea that he was a spy um, is completely unbelievable to them, and he is treated just like any other Nazi war criminal would be. So it's, a, it's just a really fascinating, um, uh, you know, probably very unrealistic story, but it just brings up a lot of interesting things um, and aspects of human psychology and also just you know, the fucked up convoluted nature of spycraft. And without really revealing, I mean, I won't reveal the ending. It's pretty, it's a pretty dark movie. Um, movie was only made on a budget of $6 million. And it uh, came out in 1996. Now my number one favorite fictional political thriller drama film, uh, you might be surprised by this. It's a pretty modern movie. It came out in 2010 fairly mainstream movie too it was it was very well reviewed but it has arguably some of the darkest most conspiratorial uh most evil content ever shown in a movie of a government agency or a private corporation um and no i don't mean that the government kills thousands of people or you know poisons an entire water supply or anything like that it's actually based off of a 1985 BBC series, which I am completely unfamiliar with. Um, but, and this might be a spoiler. So if you're, if you want to see this movie, it's a Mel Gibson movie, I should say, first of all. Um, he's the main character. Uh, warning, spoilers now, if you haven't seen it and don't want anything at all spoiled. Um, okay, so spoilers start now. Uh, part of the reason this movie really struck me is it's really brutal, uh, really violent, um, and has sort of a classic violence feel um, that other modern movies don't. It, 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 it's very graphic in that way. Um, but the plot of the movie is essentially a defense contractor company that manufactures uh, nuclear weapons called Northmore. That's obviously based on Northrop Grumman. Um, it's revealed that a whistleblower from their company um, 
was first coming out with a story uh, that the company actually murdered a bunch of nuclear activists by flooding the tunnel that they were going inside of to like trespass on the facility on purpose. So that's how the movie starts. It's basically someone gets assassinated for trying to blow the whistle on this murder of these, of these uh, activists. And uh, it's made very clear at the beginning that the company is involved in this, that they purposely murdered these activists and that they're covering it up. But what's revealed later in the movie that's particularly dark and to me that really makes this a very strong movie politically is the company itself, Northmore, by the third act of the movie, it's revealed that the original whistleblower, the character um, that's Mel Gibson's uh, daughter in the movie, uh, the company Northmore is basically designing fake dirty bombs to frame other countries for launching nuclear attacks. And I think that's a fucking great premise. I mean, who knows what that's actually based on? I don't even know if that comes from the BBC's original series, but I find that to be a very, very strong premise for an anti-government, anti-military, sort of anti-military industrial complex film. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how plausible that concept is that you know, the defense contractors can frame other countries by manufacturing fake weapons with foreign parts in them. Um, that's an interest, very interesting premise. But in this particular premise, it was going to be used for a nuclear terrorist attack. Um, it indicts not just these private defense corporations, it also indicts a U.S. senator um, who's portrayed as very, very evil. And it also shows that the CIA agents and like intelligence agents are completely complicit in this as well. And they're just trying to plug all the holes in this operation of, that started with them murdering of these activists. Movie is directed by Martin Campbell. So if that list wasn't interesting or fun enough for you, since it, you know some people don't particularly like political thrillers, they think they're too dry or boring, um, perhaps this list will... Uh, excite you. Now I'm going to go through a list of my top 15 favorite horror and sci-fi films that have strong political content, strong political messages in them. And again, I'm going to list a lot of American films and films that are probably, you know, would probably be considered generic by a lot of people. Um, I'm not diving deep into the film world for these. And also part of the reason I'm not covering very many foreign films in this list is because my aim and goal of doing this is specifically to show, to collect a bunch of movies together that, that show American society, that portray the American government in a very evil light, that portray American companies in, in a particularly evil way. Um, so most of these films are going to be American. So starting at number 15, um, Minority Report by Steven Spielberg from 2002. Um, this movie, you know, came out right after 9-11. I don't know how long it had been production. It might have just been a coincidence that a lot of the themes at play in the movie harken back to the Patriot Act and the post-9-11 world. Um, but the whole concept that Philip K. Dick came up with in the Minority Report story, I believe it was a short story it's based on, um, was this whole idea of pre-crime that with the help of these, basically they call them precogs in the movie, um, these, these people who can predict the future, 
Uh, they have special abilities to predict the future. They're basically held hostage and used by this centralized police force to tap into a computer in order to predict who is going to commit crimes. And then based on that information, uh, they actually go and arrest that person before they commit that crime. In some instances, right before they commit it. Um, and, and basically, you know, not surprising if you haven't seen the movie, it's not really a spoiler. Um, the main character played by Tom Cruise in the movie is one of the main police, uh, like people who uses this pre-crime technique. And he's like considered one of the most skilled, um, investigators who uses the, this system, uh, in the film, of course, uh, he, one day while he's working, he sees on his computer system that the precogs are predicting that he's going to murder someone. And as a result, he escapes, he goes on the run because um, the system doesn't lie. You know, these things don't lie. As far as they're concerned, he already is a murderer, even though he has committed no crime. So it really does bring up all these dilemmas about the idea of just pre-crime, of like, like say for example, a suspected terrorist well, if they've committed no actual crimes, then why is that a crime? If someone's, you know, or, or, or a potential terrorist or whatever. It's like, what defines a terrorist? After the 9-11 era, it seems like if you're just talking about, you know, that you maybe want to hurt Americans, that's enough to make you a terrorist. Or that you haven't done anything yet, but you can still get arrested for, you know, just talking about doing something. So I think for that reason, this movie is, is a strong reflection of the modern era we live in in that regard. And it would be interesting to find out if it was already completely written and in production before 9-11, because if it was, then it was very um, lucky, in a sense, to come out during the era that it did, because all the themes were so relevant. Ranking at number 14 on the list of horror and sci-fi movies with strong politics is The Mist, a 2007 movie. Directed by Frank Darmbont. It was also a screenplay written by Frank Darmbont. And he's the guy who wrote Shawshank Redemption. Or sorry, directed Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile. Um, he's done a lot of Stephen King adaptations. The Stephen King story that this is originally based on was originally called The Fog. In a book called The Skeleton Crew that he wrote. The title was changed to The Mist because, of course, John Carpenter already released a film called The Fog. This movie not only indicts the U.S. military and the U.S. government, it also indicts society and how fucked up just regular people can be under, you know, circumstances where they have to fight for their survival. So it's basically a, a disaster that's created by the U.S. military. They don't really fully flesh this out in the movie, um, but the concept of it is basically the U.S. military is doing some crazy experiment on some local base, and they open an interdimensional portal that allows all these creatures to spill over from another dimension and start attacking the planet. And with this portal opening comes like a really thick mist cloud throughout the air that you can't see through. It's like a totally impenetrable fog. Um, really scary atmosphere. Um, you know, out of the gates. Uh, but even though this is this is happening in the movie and the military is responsible for it, it's not the main part of the story. What really drives the story in this movie is that all these regular people get trapped in a giant supermarket while the mist comes and sort of, 
everyone realizes that there's these monsters outside that as soon as they go outside, they're going to get killed. So, of course, you have a miniature societal collapse taking place in the supermarket where um, a woman basically starts to rile people up into like a religious hysteria, pitting, you know, different people in the supermarket against each other. So people die uh, from other human beings. It's not just a monster movie, but it's it's sort of both. Um, it's it's not just an analysis of like human behavior. Um, and it's it's actually one of the only movies that Thomas Jane plays the main character in, where I think it's he does a particularly good job. Ranking number thirteen on my list um, is one of my favorite horror movies of all time: uh, Dawn of the Dead. The original, uh, not the crappy Zack Snyder remake. And I don't care that there are people out there who think that's a great remake. Um, it completely removes almost all of the commentary, societal commentary, that the original Dawn of the Dead so beautifully had in it. Dawn of the Dead by George Romero, um, of course, is the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. It's a completely different animal of a film, um, whereas Night of the Living Dead is a small kind of takes place in real time in one environment um, kind of movie. This one is kind of more has an epic scope, even though it follows a, it follows a small party of survivors. It, it starts with this amazing scene showing how the media would cover this if this was happening. And just for the opening scene of Dawn of the Dead alone, um, it's fantastic. It's actually probably one of the most realistic parts of the whole movie. It seems almost partly improvised. It's actually... Very, very strong acting compared to, you know, arguably some of the rest of the movie has iffy acting. It's not the greatest acting. But this opening scene, I think, really sort of jettisons you into this zombie apocalypse world in a way that other zombie movies never have. Um, you know, everybody's just totally panicking in the control room. There's people screaming in the background when they're doing this, like, live TV interview. The two people down on this panel who are being filmed going out live TV are, like, super agitated, like, talking to each other about what the fuck's going on. It's it's an amazing scene. Um, and then it's immediately followed up on by a scene of, like, SWAT team people basically raiding, like, a an apartment building in a low-income neighborhood and just, like, massacring all the minorities and immigrants inside you know, as an ex, because it's like a zombie apocalypse, so just time to go ape shit, um, and it just becomes like a like an all out shooting war. Um, a crazy SWAT team guy just goes in, blows some guy's head off for no reason, and then shit just goes out of control. Um, that's kind of stuff you know you don't really see in any other zombie movies, even modern ones. So I think George Romero's original zombie movies are still the strongest ones as far as like societal commentary most of the other zombie movies that come out just completely miss that aspect of it i mean even like the walking dead you know they've had how many seasons now and it's just the most substance free fucking weightless thing ever it has like zero impact on any like, there's no commentary at all it's just it's a, uh, frankly a garbage show uh, fuck the walking dead if you still watch it i honestly feel sorry for you um watch something else please and then in this movie, of course, it follows the theme of the zombies are not really what's the most dangerous. It's the other humans and sort of the materialistic nature of humans. There's also a great scene in Dawn of the Dead. And remember, this is from 1978. And this is something I also haven't seen in other zombie movies really since. Maybe they've done it. Um, but like the sport of killing zombies 
um, was first portrayed also in Dawn of the Dead. There's like a musical montage of all this like country music playing, showing all these like rednecks drinking beer, hanging out with the police and the military to just like do target practice, you know, shoot all these zombies in like a giant field. And that scene goes on for maybe like five minutes. It's like a musical, like a celebrating musical montage. Uh, Brilliantly done. Next movie on our list, uh, number 12, is the Michael Crichton uh, written and directed movie, one of his very few, called Coma, uh, starring Michael Douglas. Coma is an interesting movie. Um, It's straight-up conspiracy thriller. uh, But one of the conspiracies that it touches on that's funny and kind of fun is the idea of being an organ donor. and I'm sure that you've, you at some point in your life, you've heard the conspiracy theory, you know, don't put your an organ donor on your driver's license or else they'll kill you for your organs, you know, whoever they is. Well, this movie, Coma, shows you who the they is. Um, it revolves around that general concept of there is a conspiracy in place where when people go into the hospital with minor injuries, um, they're actually put into a coma a medically induced coma on purpose so that their organs could be harvested for rich people, the highest bidder on the open market. Michael Douglas sort of discovers this conspiracy throughout the movie. And without spoiling anything, um, some of the final monologues in the movie by the villains or the villain, a very bizarre but sort of impactful indictment on like modern medicine in a weird way. In Michael Crichton's politics, I definitely know that I don't share his politics but this is one one of his movies or books where I can kind of really actually see what he's trying to say here. And even though it's a ridiculous premise um, that this is happening, I kind of, I can get on board with the theme of it. I mean, it's like a pretty scary theme. It's something that I'm sure has happened before. I mean, you, like to say that it's never happened before that someone was killed for their organs to give to a more rich or powerful person, I would absolutely guarantee you that's happened before. But it's sort of in the in the more in the world of like urban legend. But this movie really tackles that as if it's a real thing, the real organization, super elaborate, really locked down conspiracy. I mean, it's like it's a classic, straight down the middle cons- paranoid conspiracy thriller, and that's why I respect it and actually enjoy it. Um, as far as it as a film, just on its own merits, without the politics, it's not as good as the last three movies I just mentioned. Um, but as far as like being a conspiracy thriller and the impact of the narrative, um, particu- that's, that's a really strong aspect of it. So I'm actually going to stop the podcast here for now and leave you guys on a cliffhanger. And I'm sorry for any of those listening out there who have OCD tendencies to end this on sort of an uneven number. I'm not even halfway done through my best political horror sci-fi list yet. Um, I'm going to end it on Coma, which was number 12, and I will read off and describe the remaining 11 movies from that list um, in part two of this podcast. And I will also go through my favorite political war movies and um, political movies that are based on true events. So quite a few movies left, um, over 20 films left to go through. But thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And if you're hearing this right now, you're a donor to us on Patreon. So I just want to thank you again so much for supporting us through Patreon. Uh, without your support, we would not be able to do this as often as we're doing it. So I hope you enjoy this episode, 
And um, yeah, we'll see you next week uh, with part two of the um, political films uh, breakdown. My favorites. Thank you so much. Take care.